Hey everyone, this is Thomas. Just before the episode begins, I wanted to give you all a heads up. We recorded this episode, got to the end of it, and we weren't totally satisfied with where we were in the conversation. We continued our conversation into our Patreon in-between episode, and we felt much better about where things uh, were left after that. So we decided to include both the regular episode and the Patreon in-between episode in the general feed today. So everyone gets to listen to that today. If you enjoy what you hear today, you can find in-between episodes every week. We post them on Patreon, patreon.com slash classical stuff. And with that, let's dive into the episode. Hey out there, podcast land. You are, I, I thought I'd try something a little more lively. How'd it go? Pretty good. You're doing really great. Good. So, hey, you're welcome. You're listening to classical stuff you should know. It's a crazy podcast wow. about c- cool old books that are in no way academic and classical. So it's, it's all, we keep the hits coming and it's a fast moving, fast paced, interesting podcast. <laughs> Uh, and, well, you're you're actually listening to classical stuff. You should know we talk about old books, and uh, we're nice. So I'm here. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and I'm here with Graham Donaldson. Hi, and Thomas Magby. Hello, and the three of us work at a small classical school in Austin, Texas, and we like old books, and we talk, and we like to talk about them. And in today's episode, Thomas is going to be talking about something I wish he wouldn't, which is my mm, private life. Yep, and yep. I know you guys have been waiting for this episode yep. to find out what's going on behind yep. the scenes in AJ land yep. because I, you know, I got off the, the twits. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is all it's I, yep. I, I, I mean, am yeah. I mistaken? Yeah, it's no, all about me. Right? On. So uh, YouTube, you'll be seeing our slideshow presentation right now. Let's go to slide <laughs> one. This is AJ at his first birthday party. You'll notice. Look at those muscles. The time goes. Was that in? Yes. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> You'll notice no one is at this birthday party. Is AJ all murdered them all <laughs> as a baby? As a baby, and then he went to jail, mm. and now here is AJ. Cool. It turns out once you turn 18, that record expunged. It's gone. So is that, I don't think that's how. Well, they try. I mean, usually they'll try you as an adult, but they couldn't really make that fly because I was an infant. Right. It's so. a big book you got there, maybe. What's, what Thank you for trying to get us back on track. <laughs> that's almost never what you do. So I'm, I'm impressed with you. All right. So got tabs in there. Yeah, it does. So AJ's introduction <laughs> what says that we're not academic and we read old books. I think I'm wrong on both counts with today's episode. This is a book from 1987. So that definitely counts as old, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll count it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Any Anyone that was alive in 1987 is old. That's what I'm trying to say. Is, are you all... Oh, what year were you born, maybe? 89. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you're such <laughs> sorry, a... Sorry, not sorry. Man, you're, bro- you're born so young. Born so young. I we could were just have babysat you. You could... How much older are you? I was born in 83. 83. So, so you mean six. You could not I have babysat Not at him. six, you could not have babysat me. I could have babysat him when he was like four. Just... And you were, sure. what, 10? I don't know about that, man. That seems like a recipe for yeah, someone like going to the hospital. Yeah, the seriously. <laughs> Would you, though? At 10? Okay, so our book for today is called A History of Private Life. Um, and it, uh, I, you know, reference that it came out in 1987. It is the first part of a five-part volume. I'm, I'm After my three-part trilogy mistake, I'm trying to make sure my words actually make sense. But first part of a five-part series, I think, is all correct English. So... Uh, the project that the authors are going for is um, to describe private life as it's developed over the years. So we start in ancient Rome. That's actually the part that we'll talk about today. This first volume goes Roman Empire into late antiquity into 
uh, Roman Africa into early Middle Ages into Byzantium in the tw- in the 10th and 11th centuries. Cool. So we, we cover a lot of time in uh, just, well, I, I was going to say in just, but it's like 700 pages. So there's that. And there are five of them. It goes through the modern day, though. I have not uh, read that far yet. Okay, so I'll read a couple quotes to kick us off. But when you hear private life, what, what do you think we will be discussing today? Like, why do they clarify that this is a history of private life? Uh, what they did for leisure. So instead of talking about, you know, Julius Caesar's big military victories, it's more like talking about what he did with his days off. Sure. What, what did that look like? Did they play shuffleboard in ancient Greece? I don't know. Well, it's, yeah, ancient Greece shuffleboard. That's what they called it, actually. Um, or almost like a philosophical concept of the fact that we as human beings compartmentalize our different roles that we play in society. Yes. Uh, we have a professional one or in the Roman world, like a public facing Senator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a family role and you have a role that is predominantly hidden from society, but not to your family. Like you've got mm. this life that's in the home where you behave and you where Yeah. People, so like, I'm a teacher. As a teacher, I very much am playing a role as a teacher that is a lot about who I am, Graham Donaldson, but it's Graham Donaldson qua teacher. Mm-hmm. And then there's Graham Donaldson qua husband. Mm-hmm. And then there's Graham Donaldson friend to AJ and Thomas. Mm-hmm. And then there's Graham Donaldson when he's by himself. And so the question is who is the real person? Do we have like this sort of base core person or are we an amalgamation of all these roles? And I'm assuming that this book is talking about the development of that idea of the person at home Mm -hmm. or the person by themselves developed through time. So who's closer? Is it him with his smart answer or me with shuffleboard? Um, Both were very smart answers. You both get gold stars. This is not a competition, but Graham is winning. God. So um, I thought I was so close. All of you have said all of the smart things. I I take your answer as one collective answer. So <laughs> so all of you are very smart. So yes, we are looking. This is private life as opposed to public life. Public life is the one that is um, in public. It's the one that is in front of people. It is the one that um, is recorded and known. Right. It's the one that people also often want known about them. Is their public life. Right. They put forward a certain image. Whereas private life is something else. I'll read this from the foreword. This is one of those books with a foreword and an introduction and a preface. So I don't know. Yeah, I know they have, well, again, 700 pages for the first of five volumes. So they had a lot to say. Um, we, We started from the obvious fact that at all times and in all places, a clear commonsensical distinction has been made between the public, that which is open to the community and subject to the authority of its magistrates and the private. In other words, a clearly defined realm is set aside for that part of existence for which every language has a word equivalent to private, a zone of immunity to which we may fall back or retreat. So a safe, uh, you know, the way that family is safer than when you're out um, trying to persuade people or or do business or do work or anything like that. So, um, so that's the other part of this is that they're trying to find, they're trying to find a way to tell, uh, or to talk about history that isn't only based on the stories that people put forward about themselves in history. So uh, maybe one way to put it is that there's some amount of posturing in everything that we read, right? Mm -hmm. So when we read about, again, we'll talk about the Roman, we'll talk about Romans today, the Romans, the Roman people. 
when they write about virtue, there's some kind of um, skepticism that we maybe need to have about that because they're trying to show us how virtuous they are by writing about virtue in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Is, this something, have, is this something that's ever struck you in reading um, ancient works before? So you mean it's like ancient virtue signaling? Yeah, right. Well, I, I, yeah, the virtue signaling must have existed forever, right? Like yep. no one, again, no one engages in public life just for the heck of it. They're doing it to increase their standing. And then through happenstance, some works have lasted for thousands and thousands of years, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were praying in the markets for people with their arms raised right. and, you know, fasting in sackcloth and ashes so everybody knew that they were doing it. Yeah, it's not new. This is akin to me um, marketing our podcast on a lecture about uh, flattery. I don't want <laughs> to talk about that. That made me sad. I, I called you out immediately. Uh, no one will know what we we're got talking about. Do you want to tell our listeners the story really fast so they know what's going on? We attended a lecture this, was it last week? It was recent. Yeah, it was a Zoom lecture because of the ongoing pandemic. Yeah. And so... If, if you're listening to this years in the future. Yeah. And the... Hello. I believe the literal... Hello. The literal title of it is Intellectual Honesty in the Age of Flattery, yeah. I think was the, the subject of it. And so I, I was like, hey, this is a classical... It's sort of by uh, Josh Gibbs, who's a classical teacher, and he's got a... And I was like thinking, oh... My, I might as well change my my username from Graham Donaldson to classical stuff. You should know just so that like he knows that the podcast is you know he we're into him that he can see that you know we got his back and we find this interesting. He um, uh, gave a little shout out. Yeah, and I. <laughs> well, then my favorite part happened, and then Amanda unmuted me. And she says, "You're on," and I got tongue tied and I didn't know what to say. So I said, "Hey, just doing our thing." <laughs> Exactly like that. <laughs> and I could hear Maggie facepalm from across oh, the city. That's so good. Oh. Um, and then Maggie, we, Maggie immediately texted me and was like, you are marketing a podcast on a lecture about flattery. <laughs> so thank you for that. So Okay, that's the entire story. Okay, great. So that is our setup to this. So there is a distinction between public and private life. People act, they're, you know, going into this, they're presuming that people act differently in those two arenas. So they are trying to uh, um, find evidence of what private life was actually like. Sometimes that will be, they'll do funny things where they'll like, you know, um, offhand um, comments in otherwise public works are taken as signs of private life. So they, there's a story of one of the Stoics berating his, um, one of his servants, right? So that, that tells you something about what his private life looked like, right? Um, there, there are, are um, art is brought in very often. Um, um, not casket. I don't know what the, the tombs are brought in, like mm. the imagery that's put on tombs, like sepulchers, that kind of thing. Yeah. So they're looking at, um, I, yeah, art. So there's the the one distinction between public and private, which we're talking about. The other one is that you have to think that whenever you're reading a work that's lasted thousands and thousands of years, the person who wrote it was in a certain um, um, position of influence, right? They their ideas were liked by people around them. Yeah, a couple of schmucks didn't just put out a podcast back in the day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank goodness I live in 2021 and not thousands of years ago because, you know, my voice would not have lasted. But um, uh, so there's also a piece of this history of private life that's also trying to bring in um, um, servants or people who aren't wealthy or it's like the, the, the life of the typical person in Rome or Byzantium or whatever age that they're talking about. Right. So if we were to only look at works of philosophy, we would think that all Romans were philosophers. That's not really true, Mm -hmm. right? Or uh, we'll go into work and leisure later. Well, there's one picture put forward of leisure. Not everyone lives that life, right? Because someone has to like plant the crops and, you know, gather them. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll we'll get into that as we go on. So are you saying that history gives a skew 
to the intellectual because it's those people that write stuff. And so when you look at the Middle Ages, you're like, oh, they must have really loved books and learning because look at all these books and learning. Look at all these books we have praising books and learning. Right. And it's right. like, well, all the people who didn't like that stuff, who loved farming like they, and hunting. And sports. And yeah. sports. They didn't write books. They didn't write books. Yeah. And therefore, it, they their legacy didn't last. And yep. so we have this skewed idea that in history, the Middle Ages was all about book, book learning. Yes. Well, you get two. You get the book learning and the conquerors. Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Right? Right. It, uh, it, uh, the, someone had to survive to be able to write history mm-hmm. to then pass it on to the next generation, right? So yeah, you all are picking up on all the... These are all the reasons they're going into this project um, off the bat. I Before I... I will embarrass myself at some point. This is a, um, uh, the original work was in French and then was translated into English. So I, I mean, the reason I haven't named the authors is because I don't want to make a total fool of myself, but hmm? actually, do you want to take a swing at this? What do you? Philippe Arrier and Georges Dubuis or Dubuis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then Philippe Arrier and then Paul Vane. Paul Vane is the editor. <laughs> Paul Vane. Yeah, I'm sure. Again, there's probably some better way to say that. Um, who, should, who should we get to edit? <laughs> Call Paul. 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 Paul Bain. Please Paul talk Bain. in those accents the entire rest of this time. Okay. But of course. Uh, I, yep, this will not get us in trouble at all, I'm sure. All right, this is the worst. Okay, so. the You like that one. You really like that one. Is that Clouseau? That was the... Anyway, that's, that was the first thing that came to mind. Okay, so. We are talking about the Roman Empire. So give me some, when you hear Rome, like what are your associations with the Roman Empire? What comes to mind? Efficiency, ruthlessness, law. Empire building and totally yoinking the culture from everybody else. Didn't have a culture of their own. They stole it from Greece. Sure. Um, Let's see. Yeah. Uh, 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 Eagles. They do address in the intro. Golden Eagles. They talk about why don't they talk, why don't don't they start with Greece? Like what? I'm sorry. Yeah. Why are they starting with Rome instead of Greece? And their answer is Greece is in Rome. Like the the culture that is like the the Roman culture is so Grecian. Yes. That like, what's the point of sort of renamed the gods? What's the point of starting with Greece? Um, So this is how they start the section on Rome, which I think kind of sets a tone for where we'll go. I'll, I'll start with this section, then move into um, they have a, a part on work and leisure, which is where we'll be for a little bit longer than that. So the first section in the Roman Empire is from mother's womb to last will and testament. So they are literally taking you from birth to death. So they give you this big overview in the first um, chunk of this um, uh, of the Roman section. And then they'll go into more detail in these later sections. This is the opening section. Um, again, I don't know why anyone would listen with children around, but you may not like parts of this if you were listening with children. So skip a little bit ahead. The birth of a Roman was not merely a biological fact. Infants came into the world, or at any rate, were received into society only as the head of the family willed. Contraception, abortion, the the exposure of freeborn infants, and infanticide of slaves' children were common and perfectly legal practices. Those are the first three sentences of of this section. Rough. Well, respond to that. So this is our um, work of history. This is how they choose to start the Roman story. What's your impression off the bat? Are... I mean, two things, I don't know, two things come to mind. One is I remember that the Christians were some of the first to actually start collecting those babies off of doorsteps that had been exposed for the intention of, for the intent mm-hmm. of letting them die, which was kind of countercultural back then. Sure. The other thing that comes to mind is that is the selection of children is hard for us to understand from from our vantage point and guess was terrible but 
for for someone like Sparta, where every single person needs to be a soldier or else the civilization is doomed and someone with a disability is a drag upon the community and the family and can mean death to the family, I I am more sympathetic than I used to be, or at least more understanding of, of the practice than... That's certainly not good. I'm not condoning it, but it, it is easy to condemn from a culture that has plenty and has all the resources to care for someone with a disability. A, a cold-blooded ruthlessness from a bureaucratic nation that cares about systems and efficiency, it makes sense that this is a cultural practice. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It At, at a minimum, as you start reading this, you realize you're in for... <clears throat> the word that comes to mind is a, a brutal look at Rome. I mean brutal in this... They aren't flinching from what they would say are, this is this is what actually happened. We're not sugarcoating every, anything. So instead of this, a story opening with Roman honor or, um, you know, lineage of kings, this is, you mm-hmm. know, you're just mm-hmm. as likely to, um, if you're uh, being born into Rome, you're just as likely to be left to the elements as you are to be raised by a family. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that I just you know, in, in talking about this book, that is pretty generally the tone that they're going for of a very straightforward explanation of this is just how it is. Um, and they're not trying to paint Rome heroically, I guess is one way, one way to say it. The chapters that I'm skipping that you may want to read if you're interested in this is uh, the Roman empire's view on marriage, slavery, the household and its freed slaves where public life was private. And then work and leisure is where I want to go to next. When I say work and leisure, what comes to mind for Rome? What do we know about work and leisure? Well, if we're talking about sort of the upper class in society, work is in the Republic. So either a senator, um, a soldier, or someone who is, yes, some sort of agent of the bureaucracy, somebody who like works in the bureaucratic centers around the, the empire. Mm-hmm. And working in the state was seen as more valuable than being a successful business person, was it mm-hmm. not? And so yes. the the merchant class, the business class, was sort of a sub a subclass to those who were renowned as people that worked in the state. And so being a government worker was a really good thing. It was a way to get fame and and often money too. Like money would follow. So what was the original question? <laughs> What, when you, what, what is your, what is work, oh, work and, and leisure? leisure. Yeah. Um, the other thing I know about leisure is sometimes it was bloodthirsty. They had the games. Hmm. This is good. You all apparently know much more about this than I did. I was not aware what we would call graft today, like, you know, money for political favors was how money was exchanged, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there was not really a category of um, bribery, I guess you might say that essentially that's how all, um, political appointments were decided was some form of um, payment for that position that you're given. And that doesn't happen now? That's uh, uh, No, it's illegal now. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, there's probably a really good book out there talking about how the, the crossover from Rome to Italian city-states to modern mafia um, has us more of a seamless seamless transition than than we associate with that, because this idea we we look at this and we say, well, this is bribery and embezzlement and crime and this sort of thing. But it's they don't see like that wasn't seen as inappropriate. It Correct. was seen as it was just sort of the, the way the games played and would be inappropriate not to participate. Yes, in, right. Or you you have so rejected the pursuit of honor that. Uh, you're not even human at some level, right? Yeah, you're you're beneath um, um, society. I guess like racketeering is an is it a crime in America? 
but it <laughs> wasn't in right. in Verona of the Renaissance or it wasn't in Rome. Um, and anyway, and then there's a, there's I don't know too much about it. I just know that there is a bit of a really interesting relationship between those powerful families and sort of the modern Italian government in cities like Naples and whatnot. Yep. But anyway, that's that's taking us further afield. Yeah. So I'll uh, there are I think there are six statements that the authors make about work and leisure in Rome. I think this I think of the chapters in this section is the best of them. Um, so I want to, we'll just we'll go through them. Whatever comments you have, please make them and respond to them. Again, you all have background here. AJ, you teach works that are ancient, right? So I'm sure this ties in with what you teach. Um, so any response or disagreement, if if what they're saying doesn't line up with what you've studied before, I would like to hear that. So here are here's the first of the statements on what work and leisure meant in the Roman Empire. The first key to ancient attitudes toward labor is that the source and character of a social group's wealth determined its value. The source and character of a social group's wealth determined its value. Um, in uh, it's, The point is that the it's not necessarily the amount of the wealth, but it's where that comes from. This was your point before of uh, the, mo- the most highly paid people were politicians, but also the politicians were held in high esteem, right? So those two things um, go together in that sense. Mm-hmm. Coming from an old family mattered a lot. Coming mm-hmm. from an important family mattered a lot. Um, but merchants were, even if a merchant made a ton of money, they didn't have the same, um, class as someone who was born into, especially life. if it was something that wasn't that cool. Right. Oh, like the type of work that the person did. I, th- I mean, like, isn't that what that's saying? That if I was, you know, a merchant of like a fashion, I, I think, I think it would kind of be like a fashion mogul today versus a shipping mogul. Yes. Right. We are way more stoked about people who run fashion companies than we are about people who run shipping companies. Yes. They tell a story in here about, so apparently it was okay to be a supplier to butchers. So for some reason, that was really cool. But A lot of cattle? I guess. Maybe cattle were cool. I don't know. Um, But is that, so I'm guessing this is something that you have, this is something you're familiar with that you've heard before. The source and the character of a social group's wealth determined its value, much more so than the amount of the wealth itself. To the point that, um, you know, parties are put on within Roman cities. They wanted that, that those parties to be thrown by the important families and they would only let into the kind of upper echelons, the merchant classes when uh, the established families ran out of money. Right. And that mm. was then the, the chance to kind of change favor was when they run out of money, then whoever the merchants are can enter that group. And then that's how you get these kind of changes of fate of who is at the top of the heap. Then over time, could you be an established family? That's kind of how that's a merchant family. That's how that would kick off then. So, um, cause in, uh, um, it's almost like buying your way into that sets your next generation up for, uh, in a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, they go into this in a separate chapter where the, the father has a lot of power, um, in the family and can, they can ruin the prospects of their next generation. They can withhold both the wealth and status from their children if they mm. so choose. But if they don't, they have set their their next of kin up for success. This checks out, but I I think it was. It's also very tenu- It's also tenuous depending on your allegiances in the political sphere. Yes, I'm thinking. I mean, I, the person I've studied most is Julius Caesar, and I know that his family, specifically, I think his uncle Marius, I think it was Marius, uh, was. They weren't super. They weren't a huge deal, but he was. He was but a they were pr- old deal. 
No, right. I mean, the, his uncle Marius was a pretty huge deal, mm. and he went against one of the other main guys, and they had a big blowout, knockdown, fight, coup kind of thing, and all the Marius followers were kind of killed and subjugated, and, and Julius had to flee the town. Like, he had to flee city. His his family was an old and important one. Not, not like the top of the heap, but his uncle was super important, and when that uncle went to save his own skin, Julius had to bail. And then after Julius Caesar regains all of that crazy political power, well, then anyone connected to him and his family is just set up for life, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So it is it is a power that can be established via politics and ruined via politics. Yes. Because what's the right way to say? You're clearly given a leg up if you're the child of someone um, famous or rich. You can still ruin it in your generation, right? There are still ways to enter into scandal that would ruin it. Um, Good. But- <laughs> do you think so yeah okay good uh so you're not totally set up for life okay the second of these um historians have too often studied the ancients ideas about labor as though these were doctrines elaborated by jurists and philosophers in fact they were confused collective notions as well as class ideologies the ancients laid down no principles in making class evaluations romans used whatever argument came to hand the <laughs> the point that they're making is that uh, whoever whoever is rich and in a position of power finds a justification for why they're rich and in power. And then that's what they write down as like the reason people are rich and powerful. So the, so like even that first statement of it matters more where your wealth comes from than how much you have that was developed by people who came from old wealth. Mm. Does that make sense? There's Mm -hmm. a Mm self-servingness. There's a circularity Mm -hmm. to the justifications put forward as to why work looks, looks a certain way and leisure looks a certain way. So if you were like new money and you got it from making toilets. Mm-hmm. You would write a treatise on the importance of toilet making. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then that would be passed on to people in 2021. We would read that and say, oh, wow. Um, um, you know, the real classical the, the way of making. The noble profession. The real noble profession is toilet making. Right. But it's through accidents of history that it happens to be the philosophers who are writing about the importance of not doing work. And that's what's passed down gotcha. to 2021. Is this an argument that you buy? No, I'm just just interesting. We buy this. Okay. I buy it. Okay, cool. I will move on. Um, I like the quote that commerce is sorted. How do you like that? Um, Everyone likes to make fun of money until they need it. Where is my third? Oh. Um, But did practice of the liberal professions constitute work? What does that mean? Uh, I, I won't go very much into this one, but there's this funny back and forth of like, do teachers actually work? Um, to which, you know, you all would say yes, right? But their point is that... <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, but their point is more that when you are... It was like an embarrassment to have to pay someone to be the tutor. So they would have these funny euphemisms like they are distant relatives or they are staying with us for a while when in fact they were tutors. Mm. It, it created an inequality to be, we are the people paying you but they didn't want their children um, taught. To not be educated. Well, mm-hmm. or they didn't want them to be taught by people beneath them. So they would have to come up with this story about why. The oh, t- I see. The why am I being taught by like this, a Canadian? Yeah, sure. If Canadians are the lower social group in this story. <laughs> I mean, it would be better to be taught by like some, el- to be taken under the wing of some statesman or yes. something, right? Um, what determined whether a governor of Egypt was a uh, public man or a mere worker? Was it his position? No. Was it his lifestyle, his lordly ways or submissive demeanor? No. What mattered was not what he was or did. Judgment was imposed from outside. So um, uh, I've been talking about individual families at this point, but each city had its own kind of ruling council over states it, but 
people who are important to the city. And the judgment of those groups of people is what determined what was good or what was bad, determined who was honorable or who was dishonorable. So it's not me saying of myself, I'm a great person. It's the judgment of the men of that city to say whether a person is good or bad. Would they tweet about it? Like, is it tweet about it all day long? Um, yeah, they, I mean, we've already talked about virtue signaling, so why not? Yeah. They had Twitter. No, too, I'm just thinking know. like classical Twitter. This is true. That This is, yeah, it's interesting to think about, okay, yeah, you have this in this society and I'm excited to see like how that did in Byzantium in the middle ages and moving forward. And I'm trying to like port these questions to how do we do it today? Is it much more like decentralized where everybody is doing it? Is there like an internet hive mind where we're doing this? Um, anyway, but that I don't want to. Oh, so how those positions away. of. We well, were saying that there's like important men in the city mm-hmm. who determined whether somebody was going to be seen as important or not. Yeah. We have phrases like, here's the thing that, quote, wins the internet today. And everybody seems to like coalesce on some little meme that is funny or coalesce on somebody that they're all, everyone's got a dog pile on and absolutely drag online. And I'm just wondering if this, if that's the same dynamic as what's, what you're discussing here. It's just done slower and in, in, in a more in a less concentrated way in a group of people in a city, whereas we now have it on this like hyper intensive way. We don't. So then our public life is online and our private life is offline. I don't know. So the, again, the first questions they offer here, you know, what does, what determined whether a person was a public man or a mere worker? Mm-hmm. So was it his position? No for Romans, but maybe for us. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're, the CEO has more is a different, type of worker than the frontline worker. Was it his lifestyle? Yeah, we have people are celebrities by based on their lifestyle um, versus a mere worker who doesn't live a public lifestyle. I don't I, Those might be alternatives to this, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I would say again, their work, they are attempting to describe something in Rome, not necessarily to make a statement of like, this is how um, things are now. Though you're doing part of the work of these five volumes is to say there are assumptions baked into Rome that um, are unstated and are different than our unstated assumptions, mm-hmm. right? Um, let me wrap up these last two and then we'll get to why we're talking about all of this. Um, number five, to scorn working people socially is one thing, but every member of the ruling class knows that labor is useful to the state. It ensures social peace. So we've read all this stuff about how work is um, uh work is worse than leisure that merchants are um, bad people. If you read Aristotle, he has a lot of stuff about how um, um, like people who make money off of money are uh, immoral. But um, when you look at policies, they cared very much about workers having jobs. They, um, you know, the vast majority of people had to work day to day. And so there were not many policies were made such that, there would be farming jobs policies were made such that there would be a need for um, employee is the wrong word, but there's a need for social stability. They made fun of work in their written um, in what they wrote, but they still had workers. They still needed workers. They still employed workers. Finally, um, we won't go into it. The common people took pride in their work and took pride in the positions that they were in off. When you look at sarcophagi, you'll often see if they were a butcher, they would put a butcher on the side of their sarcophagus. If they um, were a farmer, they'd have a farmer on the side of their sarcophagus. So the disdain that you see in rich people is not there for the poor. So six comments on work and leisure. Any comments on these before I move on to thing the next? I don't think we do that. Like if someone works in a, 
someone's like a software developer. You don't put like code on your tombstone. Yes. Are you sure? <laughs> depends on the person. Yeah, it depends it? on the person. I, I've heard this must be a Twitter joke of a, an academic who died and they put their citations on their tombstone. I know I've heard that as a thing, <laughs> but it, yeah. I was just thinking the whole being against work thing. I don't think that we, I think there might be a class of people like that, but I don't ever have access to them. I think they would like old New York families is what I'm thinking of. The kind yeah. of people who have, have never touched or, or even the, the, the folks in some of the oil producing countries who had just have so much money flying around that they've, they've never had to work a day in their life. Mm-hmm. That might be the kind of place where work is seen as something beneath you. Mm-hmm. America kind of has this like work focused culture. Yeah, we don't have much of the, an, an aristocracy that doesn't have to work. Yeah. There's some, but not There's many. There's some, but it's small, and I think the ideals of America are and so work-focused. Yeah, they, yeah they they're embarrassed about yeah. it. Yeah. This, um, this is the wrap-up of the sixth point, is to, in talking about these images on the um, um, sarcophagi, these images express the opposite of plebeian humility. They illustrate the wealth of a middle class determined to distinguish itself from the plebs by means of a costly display of these reliefs. So these pictures are meant to show that they're better off than other people. Who are the other people? What about the four-fifths of the population who really worked? Theirs was a bitter struggle for survival, and no doubt they lived by the precept of St. Paul, he who does not work shall not eat. This was both a lesson to the industrious and a warning to the lazy. Um, so even in this discussion of the, you know, we're, we're mostly talking about the views of um, labor that's done by the bottom 80% of society in the case of Rome. Okay, this is our pause point before moving into more. What is your thought of this approach to history that we're doing here? I mean, it's it's interesting. So, like, they are tracing the idea of public and private life throughout these different civilizations. That's yes. that's the book. That's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's one of those things where um, when you can look at something that's ancient and not around anymore, you can then see the blind spots in your own civilization. You'll be able to... Things that you take as, like, obvious, all human beings have always thought this way, you'd be like, oh, wait, actually, no. Um, We haven't thought this way. There are cultures that think mercantilism is the highest form of of nobility. There are cultures who think being a merchant is, like, an an embarrassment. And how does that play itself out through the rest of, of like a, a society? It's interesting. I like it because it fleshes out history a little bit for me. I, I also wonder about why we may have forgotten some of these things. It's good to have a full picture of a society, but it's also... Um, there's a reason we remember the things we do right? Because they're notable, because they shifted history, because they're ideas that, that reach multiple generations of people. Um, you know, sometimes forgetting stuff is okay, but I don't know. I'm just talking. I guess I think it's good to have a full, a full picture of a community. I mean, wonderful. Let's take, this is the, this is the right turn that you did not expect from this episode because it has not. So, um, Graham, you mm-hmm. probably are the one who is closest to this. Have you noticed anything oh, yeah. s- strange about our telling of history so far? 
you there's a method of history that you like. The, the, uh, am I leading you on too it's much? It's the great man. I mean, it's the, the history is sort of talking about um, the rulers or, or tying it up in the life of an individual. And how many individuals have we referenced so far? Like the book seems to have referenced none of none, them, right. whereas we've referenced some. But right. I mean, but, this is this is an approach of history of talking about it sociologically or uh, or the type of history that's like looking at it from the common man as opposed to the, the great man. So it's let's take it further. It's the there. It's an approach toward history where they're looking at the division between the common man and the wealthy, the well off. Right. They're splitting these into two different groups. Oh, is this Marxist? Uh, yes, actually. So welcome. I've, I've, I've caught you in my little trap. So I thought I smelled it. So, um, (laughs) this book is, um, is this like Peter Zinn? Is this like the, the, the people's history of, it's not the people's history. What's that book called? It is the people that, that is a book that, uh, I think also follows a similar tone in that they're trying to uh, talk about common people, the oppressed and the oppressors. It is, it is right. And so even in talking about here is the view that the wealthy had, toward work versus the common man toward work the um the privilege versus the i've been trying to avoid that language but it's it's in the book the language of the privilege versus the language of the not privileged um the the introduction of this book um thanks a few people among them um uh, i will continue to embarrass myself with pronunciations that i should know better about uh michel foucault is one person that is um thanked in the introduction as a towering figure in the work of history and herbert marcuse herbert herbert no isn't that how you say that? The Red Scare. The Red Scare. Um, Graham, you're responding very strongly right now. Graham and AJ, the, what, what do those names bring to mind? It's, it's postmodern. Okay. I don't, I don't know these names. Okay. So, well, Foucault, I don't, I don't really know the other one. It, it's the idea of, of looking at history um, very much in line with, if you go back to our Antonio Gramsci episode, uh, maybe about six months ago. Um, that just came, you know, just decided to do that one for no reason. Um, okay. But <laughs> wait, I think I read some Foucault. I mean, not so I, I'm going to get too much credit for that. I read like half a page of one of my sister's grad student books and she had a few Foucault books there. Okay. Was that, is that, uh, what's it called? The, it's not deconstructionism. It's, it is, it's understanding, understanding history as a, like in different views as oppressed group versus oppressing group. What's yes. that called? I forget. Uh, critical theory. Yeah, critical okay, theory. So, That's what I'm, I'm um, sorry. I'm tired. And the first thing that goes out of my head when I'm tired is words. So, so critical theory. Can I make some of the steps just so just for the um, listener, just to make sure that they're following all the steps? Yes, please. So, um, so Michel Foucault, um, um, discipline in, uh, discipline in, I think, is it discipline and punishment or discipline and punish the history of sexuality, madness and civilization, a number of books. Um, Michel Foucault is, um, looking at history through the lens of power, primarily uh, a, a focus on prisons um, in particular in both how the prison system, you know, there, there's a certain way that prisons like the literal buildings look in applying that as a way of looking at all of civilization as prison, as people with power, people who are jailed, oppressed, whatever your language is for that. That is, uh, I'm, I'm very much overstating. I, I apologize. People who are much more into um, postmodernism than I am. Um, that, <laughs> What? He's just laughing at me. Why? I'm, I'm laughing because I can hear his eyes rolling from here. <laughs> yeah, I like it, but <laughs> we'll get to my point in a second. Um, and then Herbert Marcuse um, uh, was a part of the Frankfurt School, out of which comes critical theory, 
which we'll define in a second because it's a word that's thrown around a lot. But uh, Marcuse is doing the same work. I I first came across him for uh, his book, The One Dimensional Man, which um, studies in the ideology of advanced industrial society, which I was, you know, very excited as this like takedown of capitalism. And it's largely a nonsensical book. So I apologize. Um, again, just to read a, a summary is a 1964 book by the Freudo Marxist philosopher, Herbert Marcuse. How do you like that? A wide ranging critique of both contemporary capitalism and the communist society of the Soviet union. So, um, the one dimensional part is that man expresses himself, um, only through these like capitalist interactions, these, these, um, um, by purchasing things, right. That's how he expresses himself. Okay. The. Marcuse is most clearly associated with the Frankfurt school out of which comes critical theory. What is critical theory? Since I keep using this word, does anyone have a definition? I mean, of this word? it's yeah, it's, my, go ahead. You it. probably understand it better than I do, but my basic understanding is you, you take a look at history and you will understand it as a, a group of oppressors in power and a group of oppressed that are not in power and the tension there and understanding society and movement and groups via that tension. And you will often take one specific group. So if, if it's uh, feminist critical theory, then I'm looking at how it is the entire entirety of history is man's oppression of women. Um, yeah. And then it, it's a relatively deterministic worldview saying that the, the era of history that people live in end up determining how they think, express themselves and um, live and yes. so there's no overarching idea of like a human nature that transcends your placement in history. But all of these elements, the society that you live in, have determined you. And, um, and when we study them, if you want to basically change society, you need to then start going after the systems that determine what yeah, people, who sure. and what people are. I do want to separate those two parts of it though. So on the, there's kind of a historical way of looking back and then you're, you're talking about kind of a, what do we do with those interpretations? I, I'm yeah, sure. But just to, just to say like as a, as a set of analytical tools, it's, it's what both of you just said. It's a way of looking, it's a way of telling the story of history, but it simplifies a lot of things. So no longer do you have to, you're not looking at all the details yeah. of. It's a tool that's going to blow your hand off. <laughs> yeah. I like it. How do you really feel about it, Greg? <laughs> tell, me, tell, me, tell me your real thoughts. Um, that, um, I've, you've sidetracked me. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, that is meant to maybe draw out um, uh, historical trends of how have different groups of people interacted with each other. The origination of this is Marxism. The origination of this is class struggle, right? That's Marx's theory. Um, there are different forms of critical theory. You all have referenced it already. This one is, um, uh, they, and they don't use the term critical theory in here, but clearly what is happening is they're looking at people at top um, who are um, in power and privileged versus the oppressed, the people who are um, forced to work and um, forced to do whatever it takes to survive. And so it's the conflict between the two of them that they're charting over time, essentially, as they go throughout this. All right. Graham is like glaring me down. No, so. I'm not glaring you down. I'm just like, it's, it's such an oversimplification of society that it is frustrating. Well, um, my reason for doing this the annoying way is, um, um, you trapped us to trap you to at least give pause. So, Many of the you made us think about it. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> because I think it's very easy for a term to get thrown out and then um, 
you know, the guards come up and like, you know, I hate critical theory, right? That, like the, literally what you just did. But as I read your critical theory for 40 minutes, you were like, oh, that sounds pretty good. So um, I, I want to understand um, maybe where some disconnect is there or why what was, I mean, whatever, or why what was presented didn't like raise hackles immediately. So my disconnect. That's not necessarily fair. I was being polite. <laughs> you're on your phone. What are you talking about? <laughs> so my, my reaction was not, defensive partially because the what you read did not seem to be a narrative of oppressed and oppressor but here is how different different classes reacted to different stimuli so here's how work happened in the upper class middle class and lower class and i'm fine with information when instead it becomes a narrative of oppressed people groups and oppressors and therefore the oppressed should throw off the oppressors especially because it's you know insert X, Y, oppressed group and oppressor here. Um, it, there's a, there is a moral judgment made and it seemed like what you were reading was not making as many moral judgments on what was happening, but merely giving uh, here are, they started off with like Rome is the, the civilization of Rome is completely <laughs> characterized by the outside. fact <laughs> that they leave their babies to die. Was it, did it say it was completely characterized by it or did it say That's like, the opening this is line. what happened? It's the opening, opening line, line of Rome of book. And, Fair enough. And then going through our, yeah, our fair enough. I mean, and then going through our six tenets of work and leisure. The first one is the powerful come up with reasons for why leisure is better than work that are self-serving. Right. It it's all sociologically determined, um, and there's no actual philosophy behind it. There's just power um, indoctrinating itself over time. Right. Yes. I mean, that is what they are saying. Yes. I mean, I think it's in there. Whatever. Okay. So. Um, this is what sorry this is what makes this fun other things that i didn't share with you so i i told you about how in the introduction they specifically thank um um foucault and marcuse for their contributions to the work of history um <laughs> this is this one is funny to me and i hope it's funny to you also the uh, I, I i had trouble i was in preparing my notes I was, I, I was trying to find the section on religion and i couldn't find the section and the reason is because the title of that chapter is tranquilizers Oh my word. <laughs> so there are funny things in here. Are you for reals? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so, um, give me some reaction. How does this, you know, now that I've, I've, you know, sprung some things on you, how does that change what you think about the project that is going on here? Um, I mean, it doesn't change it to the point where I think thinking about public and private life, um, and how it changes throughout different civilizations is, I think that's an interesting and worthy philosophical like exploration to go through but i feel like i know what's coming for the rest of them hey guess what byzantium had oppressors and oppressed so did the middle ages Mm -hmm. hey buckle up for the renaissance right like it's it's now you've sort of got a um if that's how it continues on then at some point you just you wonder if they're doing their due diligence on actually talking about the civilization or are they using things in history to make sort of a um, a modern philosophical point which is that there's oppressed and oppressed now and that's the main struggle of the times sure. Marx would say that he is using his his theory comes from history right so um, so yeah, so there's or they're true believers, and they think that this is all that yes, human civilization is, is. right? Yes, um, but either way, it would be in some sense um, uh, critical theory can be self affirming in that way, mm-hmm. where you go in looking for oppressed and oppressor, you'll find 
people who are well off and people who aren't, if you define them as constantly in struggle, it kind of, it's just a self-reinforcing mm-hmm. um, theory to go in and, and see that everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. I got you off, AJ. What were you about to say? Oh, no, you didn't cut me off. Oh. You're good. Uh, so I'm going to do a thing that Graham told me only last night that he loves that I do, which is, I have three problems with this. Um, <laughs> I wrote them down so I can remember. Uh, so my first my first issue with critical theory is that it seems to be either fatalistic or naive. Um, what happens when the oppressed throw off the oppressor? Either it's fatalistic and that the oppressed then become the oppressor, right? Because they now have power or it's naive thinking that once the oppressed throw off the oppressor, everything will be hunky dory. Right. And if that is my version of history where either I have to mistake that the world will be so much more fantastic when the oppressed throw off the oppressor, or I have to be fatalist in thinking that, oh my goodness, everyone will be oppressed forever. That doesn't seem like a very fun way to view history and especially our future. Um, that's not how I want to think of things. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that this makes the assumption that happiness must be wed to power and that the oppressed are therefore unhappy and that this is a negative thing. Is this still the first one or the, is this the this second is, one? This is part number two. Okay. So Part number two of the first one? Just second thing. Okay. So... I, I, I don't necessarily think that I have to be at the top of the power heap to live a happy, fulfilled life. And if I look at the people living happy, happy, fulfilled lives here in this society, they're not necessarily at the, at the top of the power heap. And so I think to say that all of history is the story of the oppressor and the oppressed, and it, it makes the assumption that I should want to be on the top, either throw off the people at the top or want to be on the top. I don't want either of those things. I am happy to be led in some, in some situations. Um, and it's in a, it's, and this leads me to my third thing. It's an oversimplification of phenomena, right? I work at a school. I'm not in charge. I am technically the oppressed, right? (laughs) Kind of. I'm a teacher. They figure out my pay. I'm not making as much as the guys at the top. They figure out all the rules and I have to follow them and I, I can't fight them or I get fired, but they make really good decisions. I am not oppressed here. Um, so it would be an oversimplification of my position to say that. I also don't, like, I don't necessarily feel super oppressed by my government. Maybe that's my privilege of p- position, and it probably is. But to assume that because I don't have much power, I, I don't enjoy my position is a, is a wrong assumption. It's also wrong to think that the people who made history were the people in power. Julius Caesar, again, started at the bottom. Um, Socrates himself was never powerful and never rich. Um, a lot of the people that have made history are remembered not necessarily for the power that they wielded in their time, but power, but the ideas that came from them that men have found valuable. I just find it to be an oversimplification. And all of this is coming from my own limited understanding of the theory, right? I tried to read Foucault. It's almost unintelligible. It's hard to read. Sure. It's, it's a very difficult book. Sure. So I just, uh, on the, for the, for the, one work that we're discussing right now, I don't think the first two points are claimed that the, so, um, they don't make any, I, I was, I was speaking to, yeah, the theory specific, the theory as a whole, but, but, but just to say to the, to the work specifically, it's not saying like, you know, those four fifths of the people who had to work every day should have killed their overlords. Like they don't, they're attempting to give a, uh, an honest reckoning of this is what it was like to be in this strata versus this strata. But, all the histories are in terms of strata. This, if you were born here, this is what your life was like. And ignores the fact that there were different people and different people had different kinds of lives, right? Um, and there's upward and downward movement. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, there's there's also some there seems to be some moral judgment. Sure, and I I mean, you're you're correct on the second one. Yeah, it, it is a conflation to say that being oppressor is better, but like if if um, oppression versus oppressed is a higher class versus a lower class, you would prefer a higher class to a lower class, right? Seems would like you got a lot more to worry about? Do you want more money or less money? More less. money, more problems. Moment, yeah, exactly. Okay. More money, more problems. There's a reason okay. that the saints took a vow of poverty. Ah, fair. Uh, your third one, I think, is I, I think it's fair to say that um, uh, it is an oversimplification to say that you can make broad, sweeping statements about 300 years of history, about 80 percent of the population. In the again, I, I set you all up because I'm that kind of guy. Um, but in the tranquilizer section, which is the religion chapter, just keep that in mind. Um, they'll they'll say over and over again that like no one in Rome actually believed in the gods. Like no one in there was there was no actual piety. Um, they would there there was a social function to religion, and um, they had these festivals because they like to eat and drink. But like belief, there wasn't actual belief, um, which you know for some people is true, right? Like there were some people who just went through the motions, um, but uh, there were pious people as well, right? Um, so there are oversimplifications to fit in with a theory. I think your third point is right. But it's also hard to talk about history at all without oversimplifying. Case in point, you asked us at the beginning of the at the <laughs> episode <about> <laughs> to to like say how we felt about Rome, and I I've been regretting answering that question ever since because I feel like I was unfair, right, to an entire sure. people group. Sure, I agree with that. I mean, my most of my takeaway after getting again, I've only I, I say only I've read two hundred pages out of these seven hundred. I've read the first section of it. Um, part of me thinks there's like no such thing as history because um, <laughs> like they're telling a story about Rome that fits in with a notion they had going into it. Right. Um, but they're sure. telling a, a pretty compelling story. It's a really interesting story that they, that mm-hmm. they put forward. Um, but it's also not 100% true. There are, I could find myriad examples that contradict what's being presented in this book. Does that, that ties in with your oversimplification point. Sure. But in the same way that any way of talking about history where you, this is what, again, I'm just repeating what you said more intelligently. Anything that says the Roman view of X is this isn't true because there were Romans who saw things very differently. Mm-hmm. That- I, I was thinking while you were talking about teachers, I was a little confused because I know that there were famous teachers of rhetoric. Right. Who uh, were paid for their work and were happy to be paid for their work. And were famous mean? because they for were their, teachers. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, so um, here's just as my like landing place with this. Um, uh I actually, I find this book helpful and interesting for its attempt to draw out this distinction between private and public life. Um, and this, I, I think I tried to make this point in your uh, Gramsci episode. Um, I think as a historical tool, this can be helpful and interesting um, that the works that we have that um, have last, lasted through the ages tell a certain, give us a certain view of history that may not be, have been the majority of people's experience. And I think like, to ask questions of what did the common man experience in Rome, I think is a fine question to ask. Mm-hmm. Are you, do, I don't know if you want to push back on that. No, it's just, how do you answer? I mean, good luck answering it. Correct. Like and how does, what does the common American feel? I mean, even that and in our yeah. contemporary life, we can't even answer that. Sure. So how are we supposed to do it with no documents yeah. thousands of years ago? I think that's fair. Um, so as, as like tools of historical, like that man doesn't exist. There's no such, the typical there's person. such thing as a typical person. You could go, I've thought we should do this in the Patreon in between. Cause I, at some level you could just take what's the modal age, right? So, you know, if your typical person is 50, uh, is in their fifties, um, most people live, you could like average it out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But that person also doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, um, you know, it, it, we spent 20 minutes 
bashing on a theory that we praised for the first 40 minutes. Um, so um, there are... There's... No, no, we, we, we didn't praise it for the first 40 minutes. I you selectively you. gave us elements of it. Yes, I did. And uh, asked us to react to it. Uh-huh. To get you on record, how does it feel? I'm overstating. I'm overstating all of this. Um, but that... Sneaky. I am sneaky. Um, that there are... There are certain um, useful things in um, the work of historians who are looking um, at history through this lens, um, particularly in the area of economics. Does that make sense? Since they're viewing history through the lens of um, wealth and poverty, their economic analysis is pretty compelling and interesting because that's what they think all of history is. Now, I would also say they're overemphasizing that as a function of the theory of critical theory. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm too nervous to reply. That's fine. Because you're, but the only point I'm trying to make is that, um, whereas if I'm just reading the work of the Stoics, I might underemphasize the role that wealth would play into what they're writing. They're overemphasizing it here, and so I think it can be helpful to have a viewpoint that overemphasizes certain things, even if at its core, like it's not 100% right. Is maybe the way I'm trying to say that. Fair. Um, so that's all I'm trying to say about this. Um, yeah, I think all of your concerns about critical theory are spot on. I think you should be very wary of the forward implications that are often made by critical theory. AJ, that's what you were getting into mm-hmm. of like, I, you know, I don't think revolution is a great way for social change to be made. Um, but what started out as a series of analytical tools, I think can be helpful um, in making sure that you've incorporated the, um, if you're trying to tell history, you might want to look at the 80% of people who wouldn't be included in your written works. Is that an unfair place to in that or say no, that i think it's good i i for one love being bamboozled especially uh, if it humbles me so you know, i'm not trying to humble you i don't know did i really catch you like that i don't <laughs> No, i just i i regret half the things i say all the time good uh okay so this has been classical stuff you should know uh you can find us on patreon and if you you know feel like sending us some money for the things we do that's fine and if not we'll continue making episodes for free so uh, either way we're happy to have you listening you can also find us on twitter at clssCAL stuff you can find our website classicalstuff.net and you can e- email us at the guys at classicalstuff.net and so this is the three of us signing off from austin texas ciao i'll see you later bye bye That's where it makes sort of my hair raise is when critical theory is applied to the church. But I don't even know if it's church specifically. It's anything with, I don't, yeah, anything that would say that you need to revolt now. I don't, in any forward-looking assumption of what someone would call, I don't know. Critical theory starts as an academic tool of interpretation. I don't think it's benign like that, though. I don't think those authors love Rome, Byzantium, the Middle Ages, anything. Um, they're, not, they're not approaching their subject with any kind of um, love um, for love for the thing itself. Um, you can tell from the first page, right? That you can tell from the first page about that, that, that killing that, babies. Then, yeah, right. And if and if you apply something like that to, and this is what kind of gets me is critical theory applied to the church. You are coming in with the assumption 
that a wrong is being perpetrated. Correct. Right? You are assuming that the oppressors are, are getting one over on the oppressed. And that's a moral judgment prior. And like you are bringing that moral judgment and then applying it to a group. Um, which is why it feels like an oversimplification. Costly, rich, decorated tombs and moral ease in the face of the afterlife were privileges that went together. Refined Apollonian sentiments coupled with self-imposed censorship, self-satisfied wealth confused with virtue. Conscious but secretly puritanical quietism and asceticism in these things, a whole world stands revealed. Again, they're reflections on... Um, that's, not a, that's not a benign analytical tool, that statement. I don't know. Yeah. A benign analytical tool. No, that's tool. just... That's like... like that is... Um, a steady diet of that, and you're going to hate Rome. I yeah, I, you'll hate the rich in Rome. Well, Rome and gen- Rome, um, what, you'll Rome say, uh, allowed this power structure to exactly. Continue, you'll say all it stands yeah. for is yeah. is this. Yeah, and um, I mean, this isn't to save face, but when you read that first line of that book, mm. the thing that was bouncing around my head is like, oh, it's that kind of history book. Now, exactly. I wouldn't have right. said I wouldn't have said critical theory. Right, I w- that wasn't where my head was at. But in my mind, it was like, oh, it's this, it's that kind of history book. It's the one that, like, is going to, you know, um, sort of tut-tut and finger-wag at how bad the, the olds are. Um, so How irrational they were. Again, it's their, the claim they're making is that any view of work and leisure is only um, perpetrating uh, power structure, mm-hmm. right, to continue using the language. Again, I tried to avoid that language in the first 40 minutes. Um, on purpose yeah to avoid triggering any like you would hear those words and be like i know what's happening here um yes i mean how do you how do you have a society and not perpetrate power structure like you don't if it's not perpetrated the society is gone a society is a power structure but that is the marxist ideal that's when you hear jokes about late stage capitalism it's it's this belief that there are stages of development and then we throw off whatever distinctions there are move into the Marxist utopia and then live happily there. Those are the parts that are clearly wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Graham doesn't like this because there's no good part to it. Um, I, uh, I mean, I don't like it because there's no love of of the subject. Maybe. I don't know. Cynical. I mean, what if I treated my students like that? What if I said, well, I need to form you into being right behaving, right thinking creatures and, yeah. All you come with, all you come with is what's wrong, and I'm going to pull it out and point it out and make you into what's right. You're not going to create a good human. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna poison the well. It's not. It's an unnatural way of. That would be an unnatural way of teaching. And I guess in some sort of sense, I'd posit that this is an unnatural way of reading history, which is why we think it's like the criticism is is shallow mm-hmm. or. Um, simple, oversimplified. Yeah. Um, it also assumes that the people at the bottom were either duped by the people at the top, or too stupid, or to, yeah. too stupid, or or didn't have the cojones to overthrow, or they were infuriated. Right. So yeah. either they were oppressed and infuriated, or oppressed and stupid. Mm-hmm. And there is no there is no room for someone to love their lord. And and I mean that in the medieval sense, like when you when you were a Viking and there was a lord, there was a mutual love there. I loved my lord because he was the one who doled out wealth to me, because he's the one who protected me, because he made all the big decisions, and because when the hammer fell, it fell on him and not me. Yeah. Right. And and he loved me because I served him and protected, and like there was a mutual trust in a lot of these ways. And I think 
we 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 have totally lost that sense of kingship. Uh, we see it in the Greeks with Solon. Solon didn't want to be king. They press ganged him into being king because he was a philosopher. Mm-hmm. He, so who's oppressed now, right? Like it's Solon. Uh, exactly. <laughs> he was not the the guy in power. Did not initially want to be there. And what he did was initiate a a time of lasting peace and moral and societal progress. Like he instituted a bunch of laws that some people didn't like, but man, it sure worked out for everybody. Same thing with, for, with like Hergis, right? Cyrus the Great. Mm-hmm. Cyrus the Great. These, and they are beloved and renowned kings. And how, how do you bring critical theory to that? You don't, uh, right. The only way this works is by ignoring the details and telling a story of cultural forces. Again, I, I said this in the episode, it's wrong. It is wrong in that it overemphasizes a certain yeah. view of history. Um, this is in the same way that a feminist reading of scripture is wrong because scripture is not a feminist book in the same way that a Marxist reading of scripture is wrong because it's not a Marxist book. But Or a capitalist reading of the scripture is or wrong. Or a capitalist reading, yeah. right? But to say that um, will reading scripture teach you something about um, men and women, teach you something about um, social structures, teach you something about economic structures the answer to that is yes right which is why when we talk about classical education it's not a theoretical tool amongst theoretical tools Mm -hmm. it purports itself to be the human the natural way of doing things the human way of doing things that's how you would have found it in the ancient world there's just no it's not like we ascribe to classical schools and not these other kinds of schools it's like there are no other kinds of schools there's only one but so that's, yeah, but ahead. just to, um, I think people need to be really careful going into talking about history. We've Graham, we've talked about this before. History is the backbone of classical education, mm-hmm. and so being really wary of that first instinct of oh, it's that kind of history textbook means it's a like that has to be the starting place. Does that? I don't know if I'm being clear with it. No, I know what you mean. Um, um, and even something that's. Again, I, I think there is some there is something helpful here. I, uh, it's probably not benign in the way that you're talking about, but um, I uh, have I learned something about um, economic setups during Rome by reading this book because that's like the only thing that they're focused on. Well, yeah, like, but you have to do it in spite of. I think the right way to read it's this. It's like going to the dentist uh-huh. and he's going to clean your teeth, uh-huh. but you have to listen to his like crackpot theories about <laughs> sure. aliens. Well, and that's the look, every chapter in You just ignore that yeah. and you get your teeth clean. You're like, did I lay with my teeth cleaned? Yes. yes. If you keep him to go into that dentist, you might be like looking up in the skies like in 15 years wondering what's going on. But my thinking aliens are coming for you. My response No, I, I would say that you should ignore everything this book has to say about religion because they're coming in from a place of religion's not real. But then how come an economist isn't saying you should ignore everything this book says or someone who uh, like knows Roman history and is like they just don't get it. They're oversimplifying everything. Right. It's that same phenomenon you get when you read the newspaper uh-huh. about everything. You're uh-huh. like, "Oh, I'm informed." And then you read the newspaper about something you know a lot right. about and you're like, "Oh, they don't quite get it." Right. But you still trust and then the newspaper. You, and, then, right. and then you realize, wait, if they don't quite get the thing that I know a lot about, maybe they don't quite get the thing that they know on everything else that I thought they were authorities on. Right. So tell, you know, bring mm-hmm. this to a someone who's um, spent their entire life steeped in primary texts, reading, you know, reading all of these sorts of things and all the secondary texts and all the history of the history of studying Rome. Yeah. Like what did 17th century people say about the history of Rome? Someone who has been steeped in that and who reads that book. And he says, this isn't a book about Rome. 
Correct. This is a book about power. But I think I, I would almost say that any book that isn't following in the great man tradition and telling history is a work of critical theory. There's no such thing as a social force. There are only people. Yeah. Is that, and so in that sense, all history books are wrong. Does that, that's the, I think that's fine. Okay. I mean, um, like all history books that come from a school of thought that isn't people like talking about what people did actually did is, sure. is getting into, um, it's doing it for like it, it. It feels like it's doing it for some sort of like present reason. Right. Like I can change the present realities by writing a history about book about the the differences in power, mm-hmm. whereas the someone else who's coming at it from the great man school, if you want to call it that, or just so like is coming at it with the people should know what happened in Rome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. the. The one of the things I'm thinking about as we talk it's about hermeneutics. This, it's using it's using history as to, to teach a lesson for today. Yeah, yeah I didn't. I, I meant to use this term in the episode, but Bloom and others the call hermeneutics it hermeneutics of contempt or to contempt and suspicion. Yeah. So you're you're spot on. Of they they don't actually believe, and it's not just the religious side. They don't actually believe any of this stuff. They mm-hmm. only believe in maintaining power mm-hmm. right over certain people. Sorry, AJ. No, no worries. I, I was just thinking. I had a friend who recently went to grad school, and they said writing papers for grad school is easy. You pick X theory and then you just pour a text or a historical period through the theory and boom, grad paper, right? And oh. and I, so I'm thinking, is there a way to not do that? Well, a way to not do that is have a, to, to have a completely exhaustive text that describes everything completely impartially, totally. which is nigh yeah, yeah. impossible. You just can't. Totally. Yep. And so you have to, you have to pour things through some sort of theory. It reminds me of the Gospels. We talked about it two episodes ago, right? Each mm-hmm. one was writing for sort of a different reason. And so what's the right way to write a history book? Charitably. That's well, the word you use when we're talking about the Gospels or talking well, about interpreting. Char- yes, charitably, but also like you've, you've got a perspective. We've got a perspective. And so at some point, there's a, there is a right perspective to... This is... Uh, finish it in the night, yes. To, to maybe write a history book through. The problem is, I'm not sure academia believes that that exists anymore. Correct. And that's and so if you don't believe in any of these perspectives and all you do is apply yeah. different critical tools, it's not well, a then university every, anymore. Every worldview, yes. every perspective is therefore merely a critical tool and nothing is no- anything, right? And yes, but even so a common way of telling the story of the Bible is God, man, Christ response. Or some other, these are things you've heard before. Nope. Oh, sorry. makes sense. What's the God-man Christ response? Sorry. It sounds uh, like a how, ambulance team. Or a podcast. If you were, <laughs> if you were to summarize, what is the story of the Bible? Um, there are other um, ways to do this, but one of them is... Um, Oppressor, oppressed. Um, God oppressing the, Mary. No, don't stop. No. God-man Christ response. God, um, we were made good. We were made good in the garden. Man sinned. Um, and the whole Old Testament is a story of man sinning. Christ came to pay for that sin. We have the opportunity to respond, to be reconciled to him, to mm-hmm. be with him. God, man, Christ response. It's great as a summary, but it's also losing all the detail of the actual story. It's fine as a simple way to talk about it, but it's also wrong in that you don't talk about the Canaanite woman or you don't talk about the curse of Canaan and how that's fulfilled. Does that make like mm-hmm. you're missing out on all of the nuance that's actually happening in scripture. You're pouring it through a specific view in the same way that with history to pour it all through critical theory is to miss out on the importance of religion in society as just an opposite as an obvious example. 
but it's not to miss out on the importance of economic setups in society. They, everything you all said about how people in political power maintain that political power. But you're missing out on economic setups if you think everything is just an economic setup. Then you don't you can't explain it. I mean, uh, explain why it's there. Yeah, I mean, so if nobody believed in their if so these authors think that nobody th- believes in religion mm-hmm. back then and it was just the opiate of the masses mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, tran- and uh, tranquilizer, so, yeah. Tranquilizer. Yeah. And so then um, then you say, "Okay, well then why do they have this religion?" Well, no one believed it. Clearly. Yes. So it had to have been to the powerful to uh, to their... build up the thing that everybody cares about, which is power and money. Oh, actually, no, they say it's to um, <laughs> so that you can avoid thinking about death. So um, or the other thing that these. Oh, so that totally of. makes sense of when they kill the Vestal Virgins for letting the fire go <laughs> yes, out exactly. by burying yes. them in the ground. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so we don't have to think about death. This yes. was. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this yeah. It's, it's a thing that reveals more about the tastes of the author than it does about Rome. You're going to learn more about what these authors think an, a human person is than you are going to learn about the history of the Rome, Roman Empire. I will learn about what they think is important about the Roman Empire and also their oversimplifying parts of the Roman Empire. I agree with that. But it, that has to be tied with AJ's comment of you can't tell every event of history. And so you have to... You have to relive it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The um, only way to do history is to relive it. Every single moment. And they could, I mean, if they put it 700 pages, it's a long book. They could just like, here's everything printed that we have from the Roman empire. And just like, there's your book. Um, but that so you still have to find a way to make sense of it. And so again, they've overemphasized a certain element. I want to just, as I'll say over and over again, it's wrong in a very important way, but it's a, it's, I don't know if you all have come across this book. It's a pretty popular book. Um, I've had it recommended at least three or four times. So that's why I want to present it as um, the ideology at the center of it is suspect. Um, and so you should be wary of it. That's not to mean the whole thing is trash, but you need to know what you're reading when you go into it. So the There's better histories out there. I think we can all conclude that the only real way to do history is to make a quantum computer, uh-huh. take a snapshot of the current world, yes. and then extrapolate back to all of the history of time. Yes. Have you guys seen that, no, that uh, Netflix show? Wait, no, about quantum. So there's, yeah, there's a Netflix show where a, some tech company actually builds the world's most complex quantum computer and then can, because if you take a snapshot of any system, that'll tell you anything you need to know about the system. So they, they feed in the world full of data, right? And then basically it can tell you all of the past and all of the future. And so they are literally telling the future because it can extrapolate based on quantum computing, everything. It's a weird simulation thing. It's, it's a, I thought it was awesome. It's got Nick Offerman as a C, weird CEO tech guy. It's interesting, I thought. Um, shoot, what was I going to say? Which is off topic, but cool. Your point but, this, but the point is, there so are better histories. the old way to do it is read as many primary sources as you can, people who are living in the time to be able to, yeah. to, to, to get it. And yeah, you're not going to learn the, the structure of it, but if you read the Gallic Wars and you read Cicero and you eat Seneca and you read all these, all these people as much as you can. And then, and then when you get into the, the books of history that are talking about history through, you know, are, are analyzing it through whatever sort of prisms and lenses they have, you're in a better place than hitching your wagon to a school of thought. And then that, um, yeah, that plays directly into C.S. Lewis talking about old books, right? That it, that we are sort of, secured against all of the mistakes that their culture made, but we are subject to our own culture's mistakes and they are not, mm-hmm. right? And so if we read history books about their views, 
our our cultural mistakes will be perpetuated, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if we read their views themselves, the mm-hmm. original books, then what we will read is something that is countercultural, right? Mm-hmm. Different than our culture, and we'll lay our own mistakes bare. So I think you're right. In reading the originals, we don't we don't fall into that same pitfall of foisting our own attitudes upon the past. Yeah. Or we are less likely to do so than through a secondary source that already has those attitudes uh, baked in. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, what's the way to say it? It is. Yeah. I just, I just want to come back to it. It is, it is wrong and it is is wrong in important ways. Um, it is kind of popular. And so I think from that angle to talk about it, I think just to identify what is happening in this book matters. Um, I had another point and it left me. Um, Oh, I am unsure. I just don't think we need to be scared of reading it is maybe the way to say it. Um, and that you can glean something from it and it might not be worth the time. I'm not finishing this book, mm-hmm. right? I, I was interested to read these 200 pages to kind of get a feel for how do they tell the story. And now that I know that I don't see the point of reading any more of it. What feel do you got? What feel? What? What's the feel? They will tell story is the, there are wealthy people at the top who, maintain their power and people at the bottom who will be oppressed forever and ever. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I'm yeah. just, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, mm-hmm. and so it's, uh, um, James K. Smith has a book on postmodernism where his, this is his similar Who's point. Who's afraid of the post postmodernity yeah. is the name of the book. And that's, that is his point of like postmodernism rejects any meta narrative. They reject any meaning to anything that happens. We don't need to fear, having discussions or reading works of postmodernism, we can, there are ways to tell the story that intersect with postmodernism in the same way with in reading a work that they don't call it critical theory, but it is critical theory um, to yeah. engage, to engage with the idea, find what's useful and respond to everything else. Um, I just don't think you have to be scared of it. To, I'm, 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 over, I'm overstating it. I'm not trying to, I don't know, but it's, I mean, there is a, but it's uh, you've got the, you don't have to be scared of it as an educated person, but it's not for the student. Maybe sure. do you? Those will you just are, uh, William Blake stuff from back in the day? Yeah. Probably. Will you watch a steady stream of Netflix shows that are rated MA? No. Why not? I don't watch a lot of Netflix off the bat. But why not? I mean, like, would you? Would I would. You, I would worry. Would you, I would like it. Would you tell our kids to? No. Would you coach anybody Depends. to? You're, you're saying steady stream. But I'm would, saying like, would I ever say the Godfather might be a, a movie to watch? I mean, maybe, right? Not, not, not to a, my, my point movie, is that, um, like why, why does that, why does something that's using an analytical tool that is ultimately going to make you mean if you read all, read it? Yes. Why then would you say dip into it every now and then just to see what's going on? I'm not saying you have to, I'm saying that you could mm-hmm. and can, identify this is the part where it's good and this is the part you should totally ignore everything that it's saying yeah um yeah no i, I can and I, maybe I, that's fine i can get behind I, that. I keep referencing friends of mine who aren't patreon supporters so i can say whatever i want to a friend of mine uh, not not two weeks ago told me um um the heads of i forget how many southern baptist seminaries came out with a letter saying that critical theory was yes um, it's because of they they passed a resolution in 2019 well the 2019 one says there are helpful parts of critical yes. theory as an analytical tool. This current one from the president says anti-biblical stay away from it. It's no good. Friend's response is why are they talking about critical theory? Like no one talks about critical theory and he's wrong. Yeah. yeah he's critical wrong. theory is the air is the, is the water we swim in. Yes. Right. 
but he doesn't see that because it's not labeled critical theory in the same way that reading this book, someone would just say, it's an interesting, Oh, this is an interesting way of telling history. Warning label. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it needs a warning label on but, it. But I mean, yes, it, it comes. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to advocate for being careful in what you read. I know. And the ideas that you're this, and this is a, um, uh, a sort of a, a tension that you have. Okay. You know, your student graduates, they go off to college, they come back 20 minutes into a conversation. They're talking about the oppression and, and you're like, Ooh, I know what you've been reading. I know what you've, yes. been, what you've been getting. But, then, but on the one hand, do you say it would have been better for you if you had never done that? Or on the other hand, do you say, this is a phase you have to go through or like, what would I have? What would what should we have done differently? Like forbid you to take those classes, or like, or even in that discussion to make, say, oh, that's oh, critical theory. That's really interesting. Um, uh, maybe their economic part is really interesting, but I've never really found their religion, um, their view of religion, sure. compelling. Yeah, R- right. Like to be able to have instead of a, a discussion that just says either critical theory isn't real, which is wrong, or it's all bad, mm-hmm. which maybe is true, but. I think shuts down the conversation no, in, you're right. in an unhelpful way. Mm-hmm. Th- that's what I mean with this. Of, mm-hmm. I didn't, I, I've wanted to use this phrase and I don't know if it's unfair. I want to give the devil his due, mm-hmm. but it's still the devil. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's probably coming up more in this Patreon episode than it is in the, um, episode that mm-hmm. might come off too positive, but what, what I'm just grinning about giving the devil his due. We're going to talk about the devil in my episode. Oh.